Hello, everybody. Uh, Vince Horn here for another episode of Buddhist Geeks. And today I am very, very delighted to be having a conversation with Marcin Jubikowski. Good to have you on the show, Marcin. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with the Buddhist geeks. I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation because yeah. so much of what you're doing, I feel a, a resonance with, but it's also so different from what we're doing here with Buddhist mm-hmm. geeks. So excited to explore the intersections. Excellent. So let's dive right in. Okay. I've got my uh, bathing suit on and I'm uh, ready to go. <laughs> okay. A little cold um, here with <laughs> seven Fahrenheit in sweet Maysville, Missouri, but I'll join metaphorically. Awesome. Are you, are you at the factory farm right now? Yes, that's in the Kansas City area. Okay, cool. And and I and I understand that you have also Google uh, Fiber out there. Oh, indeed. That and that's an addition since about a year now. And that's why we can have this conversation hopefully seamlessly today. Yeah. No, Dude. That, that's a big game changer. Fiber, we, yeah, we spent the money on it. We, we got the pipes run here, trenched it, buried them, and got the whole facility with uh, up to four gig. Wow, that's awesome. So, you've, you're kind of... You're living the dream for me, which is you've got high speed gig, you know, multi gigabit internet and you're out on a farm building yeah. shit. Um, yeah. This is really cool. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to talk about your work. So, so I, so I saw your Ted talk uh, a number of years ago. Yeah. Uh, it's probably about 10 years or so ago now, uh, something like that. And, and just immediately it was like, okay, this person uh, and your partner, Katarina, y'all are doing really interesting work with the open source psychology movement. Mm-hmm. And um, in that talk, you spoke about the global construction kit, which, you know, last time I checked, this is like a 50 or so different um, items yeah. that you're looking to build open source that, that kind of yeah. kind of would be necessary for human civilization to, uh, to, to, yeah. to be what it is. Global Village Construction said 50 industrial machines to cl- create small-scale civilization with modern comforts, essentially the critical machines from tractors to bread ovens to production equipment, energy equipment, and, and cars, and everything you need to create the infrastructure that's the basis of thriving then. So, you know, we can talk about then getting meditative, but you have to provide some basic needs first. Yeah, you can't you can't just um, you know meditate without without some basic needs. Um, Even the yogis, the the people, they had their comfortable caves and a flame. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and some nettles to eat. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> and 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 you're going. I think the vision that you all have is is going well beyond that. I mean, you're talking about being able to replicate modern comforts without having to rely so much on the sort of centralized modern systems that we've all come kind of um dependent on yeah exactly the idea is let's distribute the economy so right now we're in a state of centralization but the fund by fundamental design we have a distributed world and i think that comes from the first principle of energy energy is distributed solar energy is distributed that's pretty much where all the power for today's economy comes from it's from the sun right so by nature, we have a distributed system, but the way we created, we kind of reformulate as humans is into a hugely centralized one. So to get back to more in touch with those principles of distribution and decentralization, that gives power to everybody, literally and metaphorically. Hmm. So tell me a bit more about like the journey that you've been on with the Global mm-hmm. Village construction set, because I saw you've, you've made a tremendous amount of pro- uh, progress on that front. You know, it's one thing to hear someone give a TED talk about about something that's like an inspiring idea Mm -hmm. and have some prototypes. It's another to see, you know, 10 years later, you're like, 
have made real progress on this stuff. And I'd yeah. love to hear about that. Yeah, definitely. Maybe, you know, you can say at the time of the TED talk, we're a few percent done right now. I would quantify it as like one third done. So we've got hundreds of prototypes, like 20 or 30 unique prototypes, uh, everything from the tractors to CNC machines, 3D printers, houses, aquaponic greenhouses. In fact, we actually added the house as a critical machine since we kind of thought, well, that's, it's a living machine. It actually belongs in the global village construction set. But the, the power is, yeah, getting a comprehensive set along a construction set approach. So we're looking at it more as building blocks and to derive from how Linux open source software has derived. One of the keys to its success was large modular breakdown into very small parts. So you can have thousands of people working on it at the same time. And that's exactly what we do with hardware break it down into modules and development steps for each module. So we're inching along at the time of the TED talk. I kind of felt like I missed my great opportunity because I had so many people contact me and all mm. of that. And we didn't have an organization and we hardly have an organization right now. We really don't yet. We're not at that level of having a business, so to say, like a real uh, solid organization. But we do have a lot of foundational work. I think we're I would call ourselves an exponential organization is laying a solid foundation with all the prototyping that we have done yeah. and now ready to, to convert that to economic impact. So transitioning from the pro plain prototyping to, to the, I, to the next step, which a lot of open source product projects forget, and that is a product. <laughs> so what, right. are, you know, what are the products that we can offer that anyone, anyone can use? Okay. That's cool. I mean, it's interesting. I'm thinking back to when I, I got even more kind of interested in y'all's work. And I think at a certain point, I started to really feel this kind of pull to be sort of subtract myself out, ourselves out of the sort of capitalist system a bit more mm -hmm. to be able to offer, you know, uh, meditation teaching more freely, you know, mm -hmm. to be a little less dependent on a pay for service model. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so one of the big questions that comes up is like, okay, well, around like, housing costs mm -hmm. and how do you, you know, how do you reduce your costs? Like housing is like one of the major costs. Yeah, so yeah. I said, you know, and you all were some of the only people that were talking about being able to build an, an you know, uh, an ecologically sustainable, you know, house for like 25 grand. Yeah. And that's unheard of, you know, to, to be able to hit those kind of, um, n those numbers. And, and that's what I think is really interesting about what, what you're trying to do is you're, you're really setting, a goal of kind of price reduction that really competes with the capitalist markets on their own terms in a way that's hard for them to, you know, be hard if you're actually able to pull this off <laughs> for companies to, uh, to, to have any response to a 10th of the price house or tractor or, you know, brick press or, or all the things that you're building. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. So let's dive into it. There's actually a very interesting page. Like when I look at the wiki statistics, there's a page on our wiki, opensourceecology.org uh, slash wiki which is cost of living. And you mm. said it, the number one cost of living is housing. So on average, I have some stats here and it's $6,800 a year. Then the second one is your car, $3,400 a year. And then food, $2,600 a year. And yeah, it adds up to about 20,000 or so. Just let's see that the number actually is 20,000 uh, per year per person, according to the Bureau of Lab Labor Statistics for a household. Oh, it doesn't sound too, too bad, but um, 
the idea is let's so let's go for example to the CDCA home just to show you like a very tangible example. So in the CDCA home, you mentioned twenty five thousand dollars. Okay, but where is the labor? That's materials. Mm-hmm. So the model there is a client pays probably like a ten thousand dollar service fee. We host a workshop where we swarm on the build in a, with about fifty or so people and build that in five days. Mm. And I think that the more like a turnkey cost to the client will be more like seventy thousand. That's kind of what if we if you actually start you know full cost accounting, like the twenty five thousand dollars is materials. Yes. So you'd have to figure out how to do it. But we did with a swarm based build. The idea there is you are providing an immersion education. So basically you're selling an experience that people participate in and get a lot of skills, have a lot of fun, shatter some of the limits in their mind about what's possible in terms of effective building using a, a very collaborative learning, rich learning environment that's very supportive. So that's the product we're trying to develop. And probably if we look at the economics, probably like $70,000 for um, a house builder, uh, basically the house the person who wants to have the house, but for a 1400 square foot house. So still about one third the cost of industry standards. Right. If we actually roll this out. So there's a whole organization have to be behind it and so forth, but that's kind of how it looks right now. Now, of course, if you're a skilled guy and you've got a family that can build that, well, you're not going to be able to do it in five days, but over a month, you can take our modular construction methods because everything in the system is designed to be handled by people, not, not for example, cranes or large machines. The, the way we designed the modular construction method lends itself to a swarm build with normal people and really reducing the skill set by essentially trying to turn this into Legos as much as possible. Mm, that's interesting. And and it's from what I gathered, like everything that you're doing, the documentation around the processes, like everything is part of the open source model. Like everything is shared, shared. Absolutely. Open. Everything. And there's two levels. So one is the design. Second is the enterprise design. And that's that this is where we talk about the concept of distributive enterprise. Yes. So the idea, if we do it and it's good for the world, everyone can use it. And, and people in a modern society, people think that you have to be proprietary or you have to have a competitive advantage based on IP mm-hmm. in order to win. Here, our competitive advantage or collaborative advantage mm-hmm. is the, the opposite. It's the fact that we're collaborating. And if you think about it, if you were in kindergarten, you'd understand it because at that point we kind of were taught to to share. But from high school into college on, we're completely taught the opposite. And right now there's a huge cultural barrier that prevents people from comprehending that, hey, we can actually do more together and annihilate the, uh, the uh, material scarcity issues that are still central to life in the West and in the developing world. So yeah. it's a mind shift. That's interesting. And it, it's, it's so easy to see that happening in the, in the software world over the last, mm-hmm. well, it's easy to see it happening and then it's easy to see the forces of centralization happening as well. Yeah. Um, cause that's, that's very real with Facebook and, and Google and Amazon. Yeah. Let me, and let me expand on that because there's a very important number. It's, it's a Gini coefficient. I don't know if you've heard of that. Gini coefficient no. is a measure of the actual distribution of wealth and zero is when everybody the next has as much wealth as the next person one is where one super ruler has all the wealth in the world mm-hmm. well, we're pretty close to that because eight of the 
and now actually the figure is like six of the world's richest billionaires have as much wealth as the bottom 50% at the bottom of the pyramid. So it's, it's about, uh, so historically the Gini coefficient has been around four currently it's about in industrial revolution when that measure started to be taken, or at least people have studied it right now. We're at about 0.7. Whoa. And when you look at it, it's not, you'd think that around 2000, uh, the digital age, that, that thing would collapse back down and we're getting the long tail, getting into uh, wealth being distributed more equitably. But that is clearly not the case. I mean, it may be, there may be some hints of it possibly dropping it, but it's not clear. So no, the, the promise has not happened. It's been a decade or two since that possibility became very real through digital yes. transference of of know-how and digital fabrication or the infinite sharing of knowledge that has happened, but wealth has not become distributed. It's, it's getting concentrated by yeah. measures. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. And it's, I mean, that seems to be one of the biggest crisis points that we're facing the inequality crisis and the demo, you know, it's connected to democracies, the crisis of democracy Indeed. for sure. And um, you know, you and I were talking a little bit about, uh, there's a one theorist who I really like, John Verveke, he talks about the meaning crisis and awakening mm -hmm. from the meaning crisis. You know, you, you were saying a little bit about your own journey and kind of uh, the, the journey of becoming empowered um, to, to be able to actually have the power to, to do the things that you're doing, um, to build your own house and to build your own uh, equipment, to grow your own food. Um, I mean, this is something that I, I, I sort of feel like is, um, you know, it, it there are a lot of YouTube videos of people that are kind of doing these sort of extreme experiments. And it seems, you know, like, wow, amazing. Someone can grow their own food. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not something that most of us know how to do. Um, I've just started gardening myself and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's no, it's no small task to, uh, to, 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 to produce enough food to take care of yourself or to, you know, to build your own house. Um, right. Could you talk about your journey in terms of going from, I think it was like you're a PhD student yeah. in, uh, in uh, uh fusion yeah, yeah, yeah. physics to like where you are now which seems to be worlds oh, yeah. apart oh it's a it's a great story i love it because uh, in the second year of my phd actually so you heard me talk about that theoretical chalkboard where I, you know in the first year you know you enter your program i was still at that point thinking oh yeah science great physics we're gonna do something good for the world i actually went into fusion which is the energy that happens on the sun, we're trying to tame it, bring it down to earth. Since then I've of course migrated to, okay, let's talk about more like solar energy that the fusion that comes to the earth that we're not creating on earth. Uh, lots of complexities there. But as I got thrust into this theoretical program, uh, lots of, you know, coursework, which on things that don't exist, it's like, wow, you know, I went to a professor once and, and I asked him what this long equation meant. He said, oh, that actually doesn't exist. I just made it up. It's like, okay, people, we're talking about things that do not exist, yet there are very tangible issues we need to solve for the be betterment of all humanity. So what's the disconnect here? Um, so actually in a second year, and this is this relates to your audience, and that is in a second year, I, I took a what's known what was called a lifestyle engineering course with a local yoga teacher in Madison, Wisconsin. So I learned how to breathe, meditate, cook Indian food, and pretty much completely disconnected from my program. I kind of said, okay. Um, I started coming in at like noon and it's like, why can't I? It's like, I could set my own schedule or whatever, but I pretty much disconnecting. I, I, I ended up 
doing more independent study on all the sustainability stuff that I was now getting um, really interested in and um, almost actually getting kicked out a couple of times. I actually failed my prelim. Uh, in which I case I had to I had another three months to okay study up or or get out so I just totally cranked down and I have the ability to focus pretty well so I could I actually passed it but yeah it was an interesting thing the last year of the PhD uh, I noticed some of the other artifacts of the school were that I could not talk openly about my research to others and mm. that was like. Man, what's going on? We're a public institution, yet the mechanisms in there don't even allow me to learn freely from others. So I, I started thinking about open source. One guy in my group actually introduced me to Linux around the 2000 mark. I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. This is a system that's free. You can download it. You can modify it. You can use it. Um, at that point, we we're using Macs. So when I saw that, it's like, wow, look, at there's, there's other ways to do things. No, so that was an eye opener for me. And I felt that this idea that it's free and you can actually modify it and and create software for it was great. And people are actually collaborating together to make that happen just voluntarily. Like, wow, that's a great idea. And I started thinking about what what it would really look like if we truly collaborated throughout society. So start formulating the ideas of open source ecology. Um, basically, uh, a project with a mission to say, okay, what happens when we actually open access to all the fundamental knowledge? And at that point, I, I definitely thought a lot about hardware, hardware knowledge that has to be critical because that's, that is the life stuff of modern civilization, you know, the abundant resources of society are what makes our advanced society happen, but then that becomes all scarce. So coming from Poland also, that's the other critical ingredient. I came from Poland. Tanks were rolling down my streets in 1984 when I came. Wow. So I saw a transition from communism to this amazing supermarket with everything there whereas in poland i would have to wait in line for food and stuff like that with my parents how old were you at that time 10 oh wow at 10 i came over to the u.s and but a transition from uh, things being rationed and tanks rolling down your streets and a kind of a gray world like i must say that the communist regime really crushes people's spirit um so this great optimism that came about in America, yeah, just wrote on that and uh, really enjoyed it. And it was great and easy and just kept going. But to the point that, yeah, uh, my father was a scientist, so he encouraged me to go into science and I did that. But the farther I went, the, the more alienated I felt. So actually the last year of the PhD, which was about 2004, um, I started the project, organized that in Madison and, and carried down the mission. But that wasn't, I, I did not coin the phrase global village construction set at that time. That came a, a couple of years later when I went and got a piece of land and settled on a farm and recognized that I have no practical skills whatsoever. <laughs> like I read all the books and I thought I was hot. Yeah, just let me at it. And then you get killed by things like weeds or equipment breaking down. And the fact that stuff is expensive, the story with the tractor that broke and I had to pay to get it repaired and it broke again. Uh, all of that really hit and I found I was absolutely unprepared. And it's like, why? We have access to all this knowledge. Why is, why is it not available? We have the tools. We have the knowledge. Why couldn't I make it work? Because I thought I knew everything. So, so that's when it started. And I said, okay, if I'm having this problem, then I, I, I might as well solve this problem for anyone else who does, uh, who is in a similar condition, which would be many people who try to start any kind of whatsoever 
any kind of civilization reboot experiment. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's uh, meditation or starting a community or starting a school, a business or whatever that, that tries to break the patterns of the, the modern economy. It's very hard because there's just not a lot of resources there. I mean, that's why I get excited about your work because it seems like you're trying to kind of provide the basic building blocks for other people to be able to kind of continue to build on that, that vision of an open source economy of abundance. And I, I don't want to get yeah. too idealistic here because it's really like, this is really hard stuff that you're doing. Um, like I see you posting pictures every day of prototyping and of, you know, iterating on, on things. And it's like, you're doing like, you're, you're, you're like messing with like wood and metal and, and you atoms know, and atoms and trying to like figure out how to build this stuff. Yeah. The, uh, to continue on what you just said is this is not about idealism. This is about hard skills of radically efficient production. And that's kind of me talking out of communism. Like communism was very inefficient in what it did. Uh, it was still a very centralized system. So, yes. Um, but the, the kind of stories here at the begin early days of our farm, it's like, well, how do we get to this industrial productivity on a small scale? So I started to find hints that that's possible. Build the brick press, build the first tractor. And so like, wow, these things produce. Like for, and the surprise was quite positive. Like in the initial brick press, I was hoping to get like three bricks per minute. I knew nothing about hydraulics or, or metal work. I learned all of that on a spot because I had a fire under my butt to do it. And then the initial brick press produced 10 bricks a minute. It was crazy. So, so the technology works, but we have to have the access to it. Yeah. So it's not, it's not easy in the sense that, yeah, you basically have to reinvent a kernel for, for a collaborative civilization starting at the hardware level. Not easy. There's a lot of logistics and details to it over software. Uh, but the metaphor is clearly there. Linux is an operating system for computers, mm. which run mm. our lives. Open source ecology is an operate operating system for an, a new economy. And just like with the operating system for software, there's just a bunch of elements it has. There's a kernel. And once you have it, you can do anything with it. Mm. Now, here, here's a question on, on a sort of personal level. So, like, I, I'm, I'm working on growing microgreens right now and, yeah. and, and have just the first several batches have just been like a lot of mold and I'm, and I'm, I'm sort of back to the drawing board. And, and I just noticed like, it's been a month since I've tried again because I, I'm sort of deflated like, Oh, failure. How, yeah. how, cause, cause I'm sure this is something you've dealt with time. And again, oh, yeah. how, like what's kept you going through those multiple failures to continue on with this project? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a thing. I, I mean, I, I must say that, I crack that thing inside out, but it's, it's just a vision. It's a much bigger vision, greater than myself. And when you think about that, I know it's possible, right? So it's inspiring to, first of all, create that for myself and create it at the same time for many others who go through the same breakthroughs that I do. And that's what drives me because that new reality, it's all in my head already. I'm acting as if it were to exist. And that that's where I would say my confidence or continuous drive comes from. Mm. It's uh, one, I'm a stakeholder and I want to uh, help others too. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. So, 
So could you describe either what the vision is or what you've seen like in retrospect, what is the path? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I or mean, both. the vision is clear that we liberate, we free our lives from material constraints so we can move on to personal human evolution. Like, what is that? You know, ask yourself, what is that that you truly want to be doing now and would be doing if you had no cons- material constraints, like you need to get a house or a car or pay your bills? What would it be? And it's sad that the majority of people do not get the chance to do that. And that's uh, perhaps even worse in a developed world than the developing world. I mean, right. uh, we're not doing what we want to do. We, we're trapped. So the, the promise of freedom is as great as ever. And it's this same promise that all religion or anyone has ever promised. It's a great ideal that we want to strive for. And the reality of that is, we can do that through personal responsibility to, to make that happen, to commit to that or mm. doing it. And, and, and you said you can kind of look back and see, you know, see people kind of coming through, coming up through the same um, kind of territories, having the same breakthroughs. Like there's some, it sounds like there's some kind of path, you know, and I, I'm kind of likening this to the sort of contemplative path where mm. there are these sort of clear, deep patterns of experience when people start to train their attention and open mm-hmm. their hearts. You know, there's something very universal or human about, about the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe the, the journey that, that you see or the path that you see people kind of taking toward, toward this sort of vision of, mm-hmm. of uh, a freedom that you're talking about? Yeah, I, I- I think right now I'm seeing some good examples. We're running this immersion program for three months this summer. And so so some of the students that have already signed up, the kind of message I get from them, just being able to build something that's tangible is super empowering, even if it's like a silly thing. Um, So the idea that you can change your material world in a tangible way, that's a a powerful one. So, So a little aha moment that says wow, I can, like, say it's, say it's 3D printing an object, like, that you designed. Mm. It's like, wow, that can have an, a breakthrough moment for people, the aha moment, like, even though, like, it could be some silly thing, like a paper holder, not something that's got a billion-dollar value right there, but something small, but shows you that you've done it, you were responsible, you, you see your agency, you build your agency mm. in the world. Uh, that is the the breakthrough. So it starts with the ability to see that you can do something that you didn't think you could do before. Yes. And then when you deepen that experience, you see how that relates to making to transforming the world. Because no longer do we start thinking, oh, the reality is as it is around us. We are actual actually the authors of that reality. And right now we we relegate that role to the corporation or to a business that does that. Mm-hmm. So most people are not in a mindset that says, hey. This is up to us. This is kind of like, uh, like in a movie, It's a Wonderful Life. It's the same thing. Like each one of us is so responsible for making that kind of transformation by the choices that we make. And if people have that, if people get to that level, that's, that's beautiful. And that's, that's mm. what we're trying to show. So, um, mm. and I, I want to keep going to, uh, what we're doing this summer because this summer it's yeah. the first time we're producing a three month immersion program where you take yourself from zero to quite a capable producer maker 
Um, and the idea there is essentially like in, in these three months, you'll probably learn more th than you ever would in terms of practical skills across more disciplines that, that you probably would in a lifetime anywhere else. So this is what our current step at doing that. Yes, immerse people, give people a tangible opportunity to build. I mean, starting on the first day, we actually build a 3D printer on the very first day. Nice. Continue that along the modular approach, just real deep dive in a supportive environment. And you're building all kinds of things up to the, the machines and houses at the end that you start to now understand. Yes, this now I understand how it works. There are um, building modules like the Legos where we start to understand how the modules work and we work on putting them together. And that's a transformative experience. So yes. taking anybody at any skill level is very important because the engineer could perhaps re-engineer the module and make a different one. The user, the less skilled person, can take our free CAD lesson, the ability to take those existing modules already and build with them without having to actually re-engineer them. So, so you can enter this process at any level, high or low, while still making a, a collaborative effort. And that kind of gets into, well, how the hell do you get all these people with all different kinds of skill sets to collaborate effectively on that? Yes. And that's a question of mindset and skill set. Okay, interesting. Well, let's go into that because you're, you're talking a lot about sort of um, empowering at the level of agency you know, mm -hmm. at the individual agency. And yet that, that vision that you're describing is also a, a, a collective one, a collaborative one. It requires a bunch of empowered agents to work together toward a, toward a shared vision. Yep. Um, and that's where I found some, some challenge, um, um, in, in, you know, in my work and in, in, this, in the, in the networks that I'm part of where it's like people start to get that sort of sense of self-authorship, mm -hmm. but then there's sort of the, still the sense of like, well, but I have my vision and you have your vision and mm -hmm. we, we, and we, it's hard for us to kind of compromise enough or figure out a way, a, a deeper way to engage with each other, um, such, such that we actually are putting that sort of empowered agency to work together. Yeah. Um, what, so, so say, say more about the mindset and skill set thing. Cause I, I'm, I'm really yeah. curious to see what you've learned about this. I mean, you really have to do that, which, you know, like pe people like Peter Diamandis talk about in the book bold but it's the big hairy audacious goal the massive transformative purpose mm. so if you can identify one that embodies a lot of people then you're pretty golden and for us we're just saying oh we're going to create a new kernel for civilization or its technological base well that's a large vision if you add a number to it that's like 30 trillion of value in the primary and secondary sectors of the economy so we're starting with a big vision so it has to be something that's that you can get a lot of people behind. And from then you have to work on the basic tools, tool sets and tool sets that enable it to happen. But the mindset is one that simply says we are transitioning beyond beyond the scarcity mindset into abundance, simply saying, okay, in the economy, you can have Unilever producing your paper towels or John Deere producing tractors. Well, our idea is Let's distribute that to every community. Every community, you can create an open source micro factory where you have a huge repository of collaboratively generated design produced locally. Same old, same old. I mean, that's I'm not saying anything new. That's been around 10 or 20 years with that explicit vision uh, spoken by people like Neil Gershenfeld with 
Fab, the Fab Labs and other people. There's an initiative called Fab City. Every city produces uh, it's what it needs. Um, no new ideas here. It's just about executing it. But, but the idea is for people is to get into this. Uh, what I found very recently is the, the, the concept that, oh, we can actually do this. We can mm-hmm. make these products, which have more economic power than, than we can find people to hire. It's, that's not an issue. But people can't get around the idea that, okay, well, then let's start collaborating on this product and that product, and let's start producing things locally. That's hard. Uh, I would say primarily because of the cultural mindset that says, well, how am I going to make money? People immediately go back to their reptilian brain of 10,000 years ago and yes. get scared. Yes. Stops. Yeah. Okay. So, th- which, which connects back with this whole kind of notion of scarcity and, and sort of fear. And it's interesting because part of my experience on, on the sort of coming up as a contemplative, I was a computer engineering student and then I dropped out to meditate full time. Nice. And so I, t- I sort of took a different, different track and came back around uh, to technology but from the point of view of, um, you know, kind of a Buddhist kind of paradigm of awakening, where it is very much about uh, recognizing that sort of the ego contraction, you know, the sense of self-contraction yeah. is not fundamentally who I am and what we are, that there's some way in which the technologies and tools, the psychotechnologies of meditation help one deconstruct that self-contraction and to discover an abundance, which is beyond sort of uh, what we think, you know, what we think this is. And, but that's a beautiful thing to wake up to, but then it's really hard to realize that and then be living in this reality where Mm -hmm. that is not how our society is structured. It doesn't actually, uh, that kind of awakening isn't reflected in our economics in many ways, in our cultural system. So there's a real disconnect between the inner experience of that freedom of abundance and the actual Oh yeah, um, systems of, that we live in, and I see that a lot of contemplatives we struggle with that, and and it's like we need what you know the kind of vision that you're talking about to kind of sync up the interior and the exteriors, um, so that they're they're sort of co co arising. Are you suggesting that our inherent nature we tend to contract as and be scarce as opposed to abundant? Is that did you say that or? I, I'd say it, it's both and that we have this one part of our nature that does yeah. contract. And then this other yeah. part of our nature, which is not, is, you know, it, it's, it holds expansion and contraction both, you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. reject anything. Um, uh, absolutely. The, the thing I say about that, it's our choice. We choose that we have enough agency. If we strip our, free ourselves from some certain constraints that might dictate otherwise to us, but no, we have the, People need to recognize that we, ha- as individuals, have that agency to decide which path we take. Mm. So it's not—it's a choice somebody has to make. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I get you, but and, and it's a, and it's it's a it's a leap. It's a leap of faith to to, to make that choice because there's there's no there's uh, you know it's like going off into the to the underbrush and like yeah, they're ideas and they're pioneers and they've 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 carved a little bit of a way, but there's not you know there's not always a clear path through. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the only thing like what I, what I got to say, why, why I feel really empowered at this juncture in the history of our project is because I think we we're kind of starting to nail this disconnect between vision and execution. Mm. Okay. So t- a decade ago, the, you know, more than that, the original vision of OSC has been enunciated 
only right now are we connecting that to material reality. And that material reality is entrepreneurship. It's enterprise. It's producing real things, livelihood for people. Mm-hmm. Right? And yes. I feel really good about where we're going with that yes. right now through some of the entrepreneurial activity that we're start- starting. And I think we're on the beginning of a curve that we're really going to take off pretty soon. That's cool. I mean, I see that because you're, um, I think the, the distributive enterprise that you talk about, um, yeah. I saw that you're working on exactly. kind of cr- creating a competitive version of the, uh, of the electric, uh, drill. For and example. that sounds like, you know, something that's, there's a lot of potential there. If you could actually create a, a scalable distributed model, um, could actually Can we talk compete. about that for a second, please. I'd love to hear more. Well, cause the idea here is like, we're, we're stuck in this point okay how do we connect this vision to to what we do for a living right and the point is that the entire economy lends itself to thousands of opportunities for that so we're trying to show that okay here's an example where open source absolute collaborative distributive development is yielding livelihoods that are simply displacing the status quo what is the status quo so that'll be the say the 10 billion dollar cordless drill industry well, well, why not instead of four large companies having 80% share of the market, why don't we distribute that to hundreds or thousands of producers worldwide by simply showing, okay, let's get a bunch of people together. There's a concept called open source. There's mm-hmm. digital fabrication like 3D printers, and there's wikis and docs that you can share information infinitely in FreeCAD where you can design anything. Uh, in an open source infrastructure, and then you got Linux open source computers. So you've got this whole infrastructure where you can do this collaboratively. So why doesn't it happen? Why don't we simply say we're going to make something better, faster, stronger? Because the the big guys, they're inefficient. At the end of the day, they're inefficient. Everyone, all of them are competing with their own R&D departments to make a better product. Mm-hmm. You would naturally think that, oh, well, if we get a bunch of people working together, in a refined process, that process needs to be evolved. It, it has to be an effective process. But if we get a bunch of people mm-hmm. and then we say, okay, how about instead of the 80% of that wealth generated going to stockholders, it actually goes to us. Mm-hmm. How can you beat that idea? That's a good idea. Let's execute on it and make it happen. So we think that this will succeed if we can execute on the notion of a Massive redistribution of wealth from the few to the many. Uh, concrete example being, okay, the, you have the cordless drill investors for Black & Decker or whatever. This and that. They're getting all the value that others produce. Designer doesn't really benefit too much. The workers do not benefit that much. So we're saying, let's shift that. Let's have 80% of the actual workers, the collaborators, the designers, the producers in many, many communities do that all over the world. And now... We have this massive inversion of power relations throughout the world with a very concrete example. Now, a drill, it's manageable. It's a manageable project. It lends itself to open source 3D printing, mm-hmm. lends itself to a large collaborative effort. There's battery packs, there's motors, there's the chuck, there's the body, there's various electronics elements. There's, you can break it down. You can open source it. You can 3D print it. And also on top of that, we're saying we're going to take waste plastic and we're going to make it from that using a filament making open source Mm. machines that are part of that challenge. So the challenge involves the fact that you're going to design the drill, design the fabrication infrastructure for that drill from waste plastic and 
you're open source franchising the business model mm -hmm. so people can replicate it either independently or part of our group under the OSE brand. So our explicit goal is 100 to 200 people at the conclusion of this incentive challenge who will be producing this cordless drills, drill in many places around the world. The challenge will be $250,000 prize. Mm. It will run for six months and the kickoff is September 2nd this year. So this is going to be, I'm looking at this as, a, as, an, as, a, as an economic experiment and social experiment to change the world. Mm, that's cool. And if this experiment goes well, I'm imagining you've got a template for, for, for doing this across, uh, across multiple um, items or uh, exactly. tools. Exactly. So if this works, the model can be applied to the potentially a waterfall shed, watershed moment in human history. That's being, you know, that's being very ambitious about it. That's the potential. Let's see how far that we can achieve. But it's not going to be about me. I'm going to set some rules that, you know, the core OSE team, we're going to set up the infrastructure for that to happen, but it's not about us. And we're very clear about that. It's about everybody building upon each other's work. Because let me tell you one thing. So HeroX, the mm -hmm. incentive challenge platform. Yes. Uh, it's an offshoot of the X Prize. Every single project that blew me away is not collaborative. It's you have teams, say 500 teams. They all compete against each other. The rules explicitly say you cannot copy from other people. Well, invert that. Let's make the rules that you are required to copy and build upon others and continuously upload to the repository. And you, you are all doing it together. We'll have multiple prizes. We'll have to get a clear judging structure and all that. But it's, it just kind of blows me away that, okay, even in these challenges, which some of them are supposed to be for common good projects, including Mozilla, to, to give an example, is their HeroX challenge, they, they actually weren't collaborative because it was still teams again and against other teams. And second, only the winner, they actually had to have the winner be open source, but the, all the other entrants weren't required to be open source. That's how they ran it. So oh, interesting. Combo, so it's like a bunch of waste. Yeah. So all that other work, it's like it wasn't even open source. So Mozilla is a open source leader in the world, and even they are not designing it to be collaborative or fully open source. So we're going to be very clear. We're collaborative, and we're open source, period. And let's see what happens. Mm, okay, cool. I like that. Um, so, so here's kind of an intersection point on the collaboration yeah. thing I wanted to talk to you about. And we, we, I think we had a, sh a short email exchange about this, but, um, you know, one of the things that I've been involved in is a kind of movement of teaching and translating meditation, uh, practices that are traditionally done in silence by yourself, mm. kind of DIY style meditation and translating those to social, uh, methods to yeah. actually meditate out loud with other people. And there's something really interesting that's come in the last several years of doing that. And it's, well, and we've open sourced. Um, so we've open sourced those methods, by the way. So, so, so we're following, you know, following your footsteps here. Are, is that available online? Can you send me a link or send it in the? Yeah, absolutely. It's at socialnoting.guide is the, the method that we're um, teaching right now. And, you know, the idea is, you know, anyone can actually come and teach those methods. Um, you don't have to even train with me or go through any sort of certification process. We do have a training so that if people want to get the support and skills necessary to do it, kind of a little bit like your immersion 
mm-hmm. experiences. Like people don't have to come for three months to do the immersion, but if they do, they're going to gain a lot of skill in being able and feeling empowered to be able to do this stuff for real. Um, so, so similarly, I, I've kind of thinking of it in the same way. And, and to me, these social meditation methods, they, they provide a type of experience wherein one really starts to get that I'm not just this sort of separate self over here having this completely separate experience and, yeah. I, and, and I have no connection with you. And, you know, our destinies aren't intertwined. Our, our consciousness isn't inter- intertwined. You know, there's a sense of just kind of isolated separateness. Mm. Um, that, that, that kind of dissolving or, or, or feeling the kind of more permeability of, of that. To me, that's, that, it feels like, again, catching a glimpse of, of that sort of vision that you're sharing. Um, you yeah, know, absolutely. That, I mean, when and, you describe uh, that, that's how I feel like uh, during our extreme build process, mm. it's you're doing something that you could not do yourself. Right. And so you're, you, you have exactly what we do like in the spiritual field. Uh, but it's deeply related to what we do because you need that kind of a, a mindset, this kind of recognition that, oh, okay, yeah, we can actually do better together or we are related. What I do affects you. And if yes. I make something better for the world, you can benefit from it and I can benefit from you. It's, it's so synergistic. There's a mutuality. Um, yeah. That, that, that emerges there. Yeah. And again, like I, I'm, I'm curious how much of this for you has been, or, or how much would you frame it as a spiritual journey? Um, like a, a journey of transforming identity or transforming your relationship to reality? Yeah. Well, I would say that's, that's the core of it. I would say mm. 80, 20, mm. uh, because what I'm doing right now would not be happening if I did not do what you described. Mm-hmm. So I meditate every day myself. Oh, you do? Uh, oh, yeah. Yoga cool. meditation every day since that I was, uh, what was it, 25 and a lifestyle engineering teacher in Madison, Wisconsin. So, t- so tell me about your meditation. What do you, what do, you do in, in your practice? What, what's it I like? I do um, start with a, what's more like a kundalini yoga kind of deal. So basically like all the shakes to get my body up and going. Then I prepare my chai. Um, I do that. That's my ritual, that uh, complete ritual. Go to cola tea. I don't know if you know that. You know go no. to cola? No, I don't. Go to cola is a psychoactive tonic. Oh, sounds nice. And <laughs> that's that's what talks to me every morning. <laughs> so I, I can pretty much connect. So so I kind of establish so the connection to the infinite computer. I plug in and, and mm. then sit on a chair and meditate for like half an hour or so. Um, just, uh, I don't know what you call it exactly. I think it's... Uh, I mean, it's it's where you basically reduce your senses. So I so I have earplugs. I close my eyes and have a hat, and like eliminate all the external noise and just kind of listen what's inside and what what comes up. And through that, just a lot of creativity comes about. So that's the kind mm-hmm. of process I go through. And then I'm mm-hmm. pumped. I'm on fire to to do that transition of because so very spiritual or high thoughts like of infinite possibility, collaboration, all of that come into my mind and then I get up and just start doing it. So I love that complete transition from, okay, there's that vision. And then I just start doing it every day. So it's great. Mm -hmm. I love this. This is, uh, I mean, you know, just to, you know, you got the audience that listens to this to does, you know, pursue, pursue some kind of a meditative practice, but man, that's just one of the tools we have not learned to develop as humans. I mean, that should be taught in school. Mm -hmm. It's just basic capacity of, of humans, um, to still yourself and to, and and to control your 
mind or body and breathing in different ways than just standard noise. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. It's, I, I, I'm not surprised at all that, that that's part of your daily routine and ritual, yeah. um, but uh, it's cool to hear about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, Definitely. And it's interesting, you know, the, the vision that you're talking about, you know, when you're talking about that vision and how it really it's, you've emphasized this a few times, it's not about me or about us. It's, a, it's about kind of making this available for everyone. Um, you know, to me, it, it, what you were sharing, it had, it had um, kind of overtures of this idea in the Buddhist tradition of the Bodhisattva. You know, the, the, the being who is trying to not just to wake up for themselves, but is trying to help everyone awaken. And, and, and really yeah. the core of the Bodhisattva is driven by what well, one wisdom, like seeing how things are, but also compassion, mm-hmm. you know, that there's this deep sense of really wishing and wanting to alleviate the suffering of the world. Yeah. And that there's something about that that feels to me, it's like, it's, it's, in the times that I've really experienced that deep sense of compassionate awareness, it's boundless, you know, it's mm-hmm. beyond, it's transpersonal, it's boundless. It's, uh, it, 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 it's like a non, it's like, it's like a renewable source of energy and that yeah. it never be, you know, you can never draw enough compassion down to like empty the well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I feel that in your, you know, in your description and, and what you're doing. And that's the answer to the question you said before, how do you not burn out? You mm. have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but w- would you say it take? Would you, I mean, because but there is a process though of like of that sense of fear or you know uh, doubt coming up, arising uh, you know again and again. Like, oh well, maybe yeah. I'm not going to be able to do this. Maybe it's too much. Maybe it's going to take too long. Maybe we, you know, like those kind of things. Are they, I mean, I'm assuming that that still arises for you. That you still have to kind of work with and process the sort Absolutely. of fear and. You know, contraction. But here I'll call call on to two other bodies of human knowledge that we need to be aware of. One is general semantics. How do we think? How do we process language? There's a book by that name by a Polish guy. It's a seminal book in a in on human thought. So if you're a Buddhist, that that could I would suggest that's actually some fundamental reading. Um, mm. uh, not to be haughty here in any way, but from general semantics also comes the study of mental models mm-hmm. like how do we think and uh, mental models like okay is that like really an impossibility or is that just what i think so it's yeah. combining psychology now the people that talk about mental models cognitive bias mm. um so charlie munger so that's the partner of warren buffett the richest person in the world or whatever uh those guys talk about that the leaders of the world understand leaders, I mean, the modern, the people who are idolized today, the people with money, they understand the concepts of mental models and, and cognitive bias. So this is like the Buddhism is all about breaking through your cognitive biases. It's all there. Uh, so studying that helps, like just really looking at mental models and cognitive biases mm-hmm. as framed through the framework of general semantics, which in essence says that's the map is not the territory. That's where we say what you perceive is not reality, right? That's a Buddhist thing, right? Mm-hmm. You say you guys say that too, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's one half of it. Um, yeah, that 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 there's a kind of emptiness uh, to our ideas and concepts that they're not fixed, um, and yet 
the other half of it is like, and our, our, our ideas and our models on one level are also all we have. Um, without them, we, we have, you know, we're just like yeah. catatonic yeah, breathing yeah. beings. It's that big elephant. Um, well, the big elephant, our brain, like it, it's that elephant in the room. We've got to tame it. That big <laughs> right. elephant that if you let it, it's going to cause havoc if it's untamed. Yes. But if you, if you can tame it, it can be very powerful to, to some really good ends. Yeah. This is really, I mean, this is all about, yeah. I mean, you have to deal with that as, so, you know, myself as a person striving to learn in all ways and be an un movement entrepreneur, mm. I study this stuff as in like the mental models, cognitive bias coaching. I mean, I get, started getting into this, like I had pretty much, I would say like a few years ago, I kind of went through a low when maybe like three years ago, I went through a low where I, I noticed that this shit ain't going anywhere. You know, I, I said all this stuff, you know, I put out some plans. Nobody's re replicating, not nobody, but it's not gaining traction as in major replication, all kinds of enterprises starting all over the place. And all that. there are some, there's a few dozen, but it's economically insignificant. And when I saw that, it's like, okay, so I think this is a cool idea. What's up? And, <laughs> mm -hmm. and then, uh, then I thought, that that's when that distinction between vision and execution that part really started to hit me and that's when i said okay gotta just step up my game and that's called uh, mm. the entrepreneurship part mm. pick up some skills of execution management and how do you actually turn this into reality so definitely uh, just a whole new wave of learning getting healthy again i.e like exercising every day because farm life is actually pretty hard on your body yeah. So one thing I do right now every day, I, I, I do my exercises like half an hour. Uh, I do P90X3 um, stuff. I do my meditation in the morning, but but really pay attention to the body. Yeah. That's, you got to do it to your food, to your mm. spirit, to your intellect. You got to pay nurture all of that. And then you're just going to start. It's going to be much easier to break through those. Like you say, mm. um, the things that are always telling us you can't do it. Now, nah, just forget about it. Yeah. It's not there. <laughs> yes. You got you to free yourself. And I feel really good where I'm at right now. But the thing is, that you, that's, don't wish you could have that. No. You don't want to wish to be like me or like your hero. Uh, you want to understand that that's called discipline and work, right? You got to work it so you can do it, but you got to put the work into it. That's the mm -hmm. bottom line there. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Goes back to practice. Practice. Yeah. Yeah. But not, but it's interesting because there's practice, like people practice, like, you know, CEOs are practicing, uh, you know, snipers are practicing people practice, but sometimes there's, there's a lack that the vision part is so important. Like, what are you practicing for? You know, what is this, what is your kind of discipline for? Cause a lot of people are disciplining themselves so they can be better at doing the status quo. That's part of what I've seen. Yeah. People can discipline themselves to be better killers, but no, it's about integrated skill set so this is where it goes back to the education system where you, you're in a small discipline and, and one of the questions i ask well if you're this phd in this one small discipline and you know very very much about very little you don't know how this connects to anything else in the world that's a very bad design of how mm. we do advanced science today and, and advanced society mm. it's really bad so we call out for the integration the generalists systems thinking that can break through that that's critical to that so that needs to happen so yes we can train ourselves but but we we want to ask those questions of why 
mm-hmm. uh, by taking on a bigger perspective. Perspective. Yeah. We transcend transcendence. Transcend and include kind of deal. Oh, is that is that a little Wilbur, little Ken Wilbur? Yeah, that, that's a Wilbur thing. Oh, interesting. Didn't I, I? I used to work for Wilbur. I was oh, uh, in Colorado uh, working for his Integral Institute. Uh, a yeah, yeah, ago. very cool. I think that's some really cool stuff. And when I look at that, it's like that also is like okay, that's a that's like far out and definitely talking the the language. Uh, but also, I would question like the practice. Okay, how do you apply that to? to Absolutely, real life? that's that's the that's the biggest question around that stuff is how do you actually you know bring that kind of meta theoretical yeah. orientation mystical into yeah. into into atoms and you know into yeah. the world. And one hint, I mean, I'll just throw out. It's uh, I mean, not to you know, uplift OSC here, but our vision. Please feel free to uplift it. Yeah. So that is, uh, I have a mentor who helped define the vision and what i just i just love it and it's called osc's vision it's about collaborative design for a transparent and inclusive economy of abundance Hmm. so now anything that i do i filter through that like okay was that collaborative is it inclusive so so that statement i I mean i can go on more length what what all of it means but call Collaborative design, the collaborative part is critical because it's about all of us working together. Um, inclusive and collaborative, yeah, that's all about open source and distributive. Like we need to include humans and nature. So that's mm. the eco-friendly is in there. Abundance mm. is abundance of thinking and economies where abundance is fundamental to the sun providing 10,000 times more power than we use even in our modern wasteful society. We have absolute abundance on first principles. Mm-hmm. Somewhere we got stuck where we kind of disconnected from that. And we're like, most people I would say are living in a, in a framework of scarcity. So that's the grand awakening that we need to call out for. Beautiful. It feels like a good place to end unless there's something else you want to share. Yeah, I would. I would. And that's to invite people to our work. So right now, the thing that we're doing is, as I mentioned, having noticed that this is not spreading, well, how do we teach this, uh, generate a collaboratively literate public? So we have two initiatives on that, three initiatives. So our flow is, so right now we're running all these open source microfactory steam camps, where we take average people and teach them the skills of collaborative design for a transparent and inclusive economy of abundance. Really, really that we, we actually get people, you teach the, teach people skills of collaborating, working with CAD, then translating that readily into prototypes using a 3D printer, 3D printer that you build yourself the first day. So you go through this iterative learning process where you go from ideas to reality as an empowering experience. But the biggest thing about that being that you learn that there's a process by which so many people can collaborate and this could be so much greater than yourself. So that's, that's what we're doing. We're trying to scale that up. Like last event, we ran three locations at the same time. Our goal is to run dozens of these. So you're actually also collaborating with the other groups that are running it in real time. So these events are nine days and the last five days we do projects. So imagine you get like 24 locations, 24 people. It's just like 500 people that can be working together in five days. You can do a lot if you collaborate like that. That's, that's the answer to your question. Well, how do you actually get traction of aligning people to go far pushing a certain project forward well, we're recreating we are creating an explicit structure where that can happen based on the collaborative skills 
And then, so that's a nine day experience that we're offering now, either four or nine day experience. And we'll post our next one soon. We're, we're starting to run this every, essentially every month. So we're really getting into the regular programming. Uh, so all of this is to get collaboratively literate people so we can all collaborate on the incentive challenge that I mentioned. So that as a real economic experiment that anyone can then take the plans and enterprise plans. And if they really want to, they can make a livelihood if they like. So that's, that's kind of the nutshell of how we're approaching that to get many people involved in this, build a community where collaboration is now the norm. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.